would like you to think for just a moment about a time in your life when you experienced a loving community or a community of love. Think of it that way. Is there a time in your life when you really experienced being a part of a loving community? Maybe for you, it was in your family of origin. It's where you grew up. Maybe you had a really great parent, great parents, a very sense of, a sense of security, a sense of being loved and cared for and provided for. Maybe that's where you felt that, that deep, intimate sense of community. Maybe it's you've got a group of friends and you all cheer on the same sports team. And maybe there's a fun sense of community and unity when you're all together wanting victory for your favorite team. You forget about your differences and you're just pressing on and celebrating a, a victory in a sports team. Maybe for you, you experienced it in college. Maybe you had um, a great sorority or a great group of friends in the dorm and, and that was a time where you really felt a loving community. You know, maybe it's happening right now in your life. Maybe it's the family that you're a part of now. Maybe you have a husband and children or you feel that really kind of core sense of belonging to a community of people where there's love and support. Maybe for you it's at work. Maybe you have a great team at work and you feel that common mission and purpose at work. Um, maybe it's a support group that you belong to where you feel it there. Or maybe it's ministry. Maybe it's you're in a church or in a, in a ministry where you're just really feeling this is a very loving, supportive community. Maybe my hope is that your, your groups that you belong to will become that for you as well this year. But I just want you to think about that for just a moment. And then I want to tell you about a time in my life when I experienced just the opposite. Actually, a time in my life when I experienced probably the most profound loneliness I have ever tasted. It was a time for me between college and marriage, the time for being a young adult. And we've got a few young adults here who might be in that season of life as well. I think I'd shared with you that I'd been hired with Hallmark out of college, and the headquarters was in Kansas City, and I was sent out to California to live in Sacramento, and I was um, there serving as a, an account rep, and so I had to travel over three states. So I didn't have any coworkers to go show up and hang out with every day. I lived completely by myself, except for my beloved black lab. That was before I became a golden girl. I had a black lab. That was, he was my best friend. I had no roommates. I had no friends. I had no family. I had no coworkers. And when I went to the grocery store, nobody even recognized my face. Have you ever been in that season of life where you are just an absolute stranger in a strange place? And that's how I felt. And it was the most profound sense of loneliness. I had, I had a relationship with God at the time. I actually was really growing vibrantly in my relationship with God. And I'm so thankful because he was the only one I had to talk to. And then I prayed and really said, Lord, I'm just so deeply, deeply lonely. And my parents, who lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, so they were about 100 miles away, they were attending a church, and they asked at their church if there was any church in Sacramento that was known to have a lot of young people. And so they recommended that I attend this church. It was a different denomination than I'd ever attended before. It was a Baptist church, but I went. I showed up one day to church all by myself, a whole community of people. I didn't know a single person. I just walked in. 
Well, that day, that pastor had been there for 30 years, and I heard he'd never done this since. He actually said, good morning, is there anybody here who's brand new today? Would you stand up? Now, how awkward is that to like be told to stand up if you're new? And I did. I stood up. And behind me was this guy. His name was Tad Dykes. And he introduced himself to me after the service. And he said, hey, you're new? We have a young adult Sunday school class. Would you like to come the next hour and join our Sunday school class? And I said, sure. And so I went that day to their Sunday school class, and from that moment forward, I had such an amazing community of friends. All men and women, young, in the same season as me, kind of in between college and real life, marriage and family, they had Bible studies, and they had fun social activities, and they had so many amazing things going on, and they just welcomed me into that and made me such a a great part of their community. And it really changed everything for me. First of all, do you know that in the six years I continued to attend that church, that pastor never, ever again did that. That was for me, that one Sunday. But also, those friends then introduced me to Bob Nowak, who within a year became my husband. Not that I recommend courtship that quickly, but that's how it went. He got me when I was down and lonely. (laughs) It was God's perfect plan, and it was... um, It just changed everything. But whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, there is a longing in all of us for community. There's a longing in all of us to belong to a group of people, to to have relationships. And um, we, we yearn to have people who know us. It's a terrible feeling to be somewhere where you, you are not known. Nobody, you, nobody in the whole place recognizes you or knows anything about you. And that's a terrible feeling because we have this sense of, of desire to be known and to know people. You know, we have an inward craving to love and to be loved, to serve and to be served, to belong to another group of people. And this is because we are made in God's image. This is who God is. God is a God who lives in community with himself. He is a community unto himself. He is one God, but he is three distinct persons, and he enjoys relationship within himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is completely hard to understand, but we're going to unpack that today and hopefully walk away with a greater sense of knowing how one God can be three distinct persons with one mind and one purpose. God desires us to have a personal relationship with him because he is relational, because he lives in community with himself, because he made us. He made us with an innate desire for community, for relationship, and that hopefully will send us seeking to have a relationship with him because he desires, because he's our creator and maker, to have a relationship with us. And so that desire for community is actually one of the greatest longings of the human heart. So today we're going to talk about the Trinity, and the word Trinity is just a description of God's personhood. It comes from a Latin word, trinitas, which means threeness or the tri-personality of God. And if you've done a, a search in your Bible, you will not find the word trinity anywhere in Scripture. And that's because it's not stated in Scripture as a, as a definition, but the concept is present all through Scripture. God is revealed in his three persons all through, and we're going to look at that. You got to look at that in your lessons as well. 
Um, but the, the word was first used by a man named Tertullian. He lived in the year 155 to 220, so just really back in the days shortly after Jesus left the earth. And he's the first one to describe, put words around this concept of God being one, one God with three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are all fully and equally God in relation to each other. So I'm going to give you a definition of, of God tonight to remember. And we're going to be looking at this throughout our study, but this is what I want you to walk away with. I want you to know that there is one living, true, unchanging, holy God, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you want me to say that again? There is one living, true, unchanging, holy God, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So tonight we're going to look at this lesson in two parts. First, who is the triune God? Let's look and see who he is. And then we're going to look at where do we see the Trinity in Scripture, both the Old and the New Testament. So let's talk first about who is the triune God. I have a diagram for you to kind of look at as I'm speaking that will help you wrap your mind around who he is. But how can we understand the mystery of the Trinity? How do we understand this mystery? Well, I'm going to give you three things to know about God. First of all, he is one living, true, unchanging God. That's who he is. We have to understand before we launch into a discussion about the Trinity that he is, there's one God. There are not three gods. There's one God. And we see this all through Scripture. For example, in Deuteronomy 6.4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Oops, with all your strength. So he is one God, and the call is for us to love him with all of our being. Also, in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, it says, We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there is no God but one. Speaking against idolatry, it's nothing. There's one God. There's no God but one. And then in Isaiah 55, 5, he says, I am the Lord, and there is no other Beside me, there is no God. So over and over in Scripture, we hear there is one true God of Israel. There is one God. There is no other. He's speaking against the pagan cultures that worshipped many gods. He's saying, no, there's one God. People, you see, people have always been tempted to worship anything or anyone but God. We are created in his image. We are created to worship. And so we are constantly Back in the day of Israel and the day of today, we're constantly putting objects into the, the worship department of our lives and trying to find something to worship other than God. And historically, people made idols. They worshipped pagan gods or they worshipped the sky or the sea or the land. They found all kinds of things to worship. But God was repeatedly making it clear, no, there's one God and I am he. I am the one God. Now, it's interesting because even Jesus was tempted to worship to pervert his worship of the Father. When he was in the wilderness and he was going through a time of temptation, the third temptation that Satan brought to him was to worship him instead of worshiping the one true God. Matthew 4 speaks of this. It says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. 
And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve, and him only shall you serve. Now, we don't live in a culture today where we worship golden statues. I bet if I went into your homes, you weren't going to have like different kinds of worship items out on your fireplace hearth. That's just not what we do today. But we put a lot of other things in that place of worship. And most probably prominently, we put ourselves in that place of worship. You know, we, we do live in a society right now where our independence and our self-sufficiency and in our own thinking and our own freedoms is of the utmost importance. It's what we glorify more than anything else. We live in a very me-centered society where we, we say, you know, just think whatever you think and believe whatever you believe. It's, it's all about the individual. It's not about community. It's about isolation and individualization. And, you know, it reminds me of a place in the Bible that says, that, they're, that all the people did what was right in their own eyes. And that's the kind of world that we're living in now. And so the result is that we're making up our own truth, and we're basing it on whatever we want it to be. And we've forfeited God's truth, and we've forfeited community the way that God designed it for having our own independence. But what the Bible tells us is that, it, that despite what we've chosen to do as a culture, what we're pressured to do by our culture, the truth is that there is only one God, and he alone is worthy of worship. As we talked about last week, we often get that telescope flipped around, and we magnify ourselves, and we belittle God. And the Bible reminds us over and over again, oh no, God is so vast and so grand and so worthy of worship, and we need to see ourselves rightly before him. Well, the second thing about God to know is that he exists in three persons. So even though he's one he exists eternally as three distinct persons. Now, persons doesn't mean like a human being. Persons means he's a personal being. So he has thoughts and feelings, and he, he speaks and he acts. But each person of the Godhead is fully God. Now, the Bible speaks of each person as being fully God in Scripture. So I want to kind of walk you through where you can see this. First of all, God the Father is probably the most obvious. Nobody disputes that God the Father is seen as God in Scripture, but in Philippians 1-2, it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it mentions God is our Father. Now, in, in Titus 2-13, we see Jesus being referred to as, as God. It says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we see Jesus being referred to as God, and many times through Scripture, Jesus is referred to as God by others or by himself. And we know this is what he was crucified for, is that he was accused of blaspheming by calling himself God. So we know this was frequent in Scripture. But also we know that in John 1.1, John makes it very clear that the Word is God. And we talked about this last week, that the Word... uh, is God the Son who was present at the beginning of the world, at creation. And John tells us that right in the beginning of his gospel so that as we go through and we learn about the works and the words of Christ, we understand that he is God, he was with God in the beginning of the world, and um, he is God the Son. And then we see the Holy Spirit as God in Acts chapter 5. This is a place where Ananias is being um, disciplined for lying. 
by Peter. And so Peter says to him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to man, but to God. And there are other places in Scripture where the Spirit is spoken of as God. So all through Scripture, you can see that there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, too, we also see how the Holy Spirit possesses all the attributes that we would normally attribute to the Father. So we see that he is eternal and creator, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's omnipresent. And all of these character qualities are attributed actually to all three persons of the Godhead. So when I talk about um, how we're going to go through our lessons and we're going to be studying, next week we're studying the eternality of God, we're having to always remember, okay, that's not just God the Father, that's God the Son and God the Spirit. All of these character qualities refer to all three persons of the Godhead all the time. They never don't apply to one or the other. It's always the same. They share the same character qualities. And, the Holy, and Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit particularly as a he, never as an it. So he's a person, as we talked about. In John 14, 16, Jesus explains to the disciples that he's going to leave and prepare a place for them. And he tells them that he's going to send them another comforter, a comforter like he has been to them. This is another comforter, very much referring to a person. Um, we don't think of an it as a comforter. A comforter is a person and a helper, an advocate. These are the terms that are used for the Spirit. And so we know that he is very much a person who provides encouragement and support and assistance and care. So each member of the Trinity is equally God, they all share all of the divine attributes. And um, he, here's a simple way to kind of understand the Trinity. It's this, there's a lot of different ways that you might have heard of. I brought you a picture because I'm visual. So think of an egg. An egg is an egg. But an egg is also a shell, a yolk, and an egg white. Three parts making up one egg. But I got to tell you my favorite one comes from Tertullian. I love this one the best. He says this. Think of the Father as, think of, think of the Trinity as a plant. The Father is the roots that go down deep into the soil. The Son is that tender shoot that bursts forth into the world. And then the Spirit is the fragrance and the beauty that goes throughout. So the Spirit is actually what really attracts us to God. We see the fragrance and the beauty. And then we find the shoot with the deep roots, which are the Father. And I love, just love that analogy. It's easy for me to understand. So the third thing that you need to know is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they all live in eternal relationship with one another. So they're all working all the time with one purpose and one mind. We are such compartmentalized people that we have to try to wrap our minds kind of clearly around things to understand them. So Scripture does very, very, very clearly give us ways to sort of put a framework around the three persons and so we think primarily of the Father as being um, the author of the plan of salvation, the one who created the world, who then made the, the plan for salvation, how to redeem the brokenness and sinfulness of the world and reconcile things back into himself. The Father designed that plan. And then we understand the Son as being the one who achieved that plan by coming and dying on the cross and resurrecting and ascending to heaven and now being Lord of the church, being with God at the right hand, ruling over his church. 
But we see that the Spirit is the one who draws people to himself. He's the one who spotlights the work that Christ did so that we can see and understand and enter into relationship with Christ, be drawn into reconciliation with the Father, and he's also the one that works to transform our lives into his likeness. So all three are working all the time with one mind and one purpose, but they're serving different functions in moving, especially in moving our lives forward into relationship with God. So the Bible reveals in many places how we see them working together in different ways as well. So one way we see them working together is in judgment. We see the Father and the Son working together in that way. So let me have you look at John 5, 22 and 23. It says, For the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So we see honor and we see a shared um, judgment and of trust. We also see how they bear witness to each other. You know, we know that when Jesus came, he said he comes in the name of the Father, and to know me is to know the Father. To see me is to see the Father. So seeing and interacting with Jesus spotlights the Father, his great plan and his great love. But then we also know the Holy Spirit came to spotlight Christ so that we could see him clearly. So they're all witnessing to each other all the time. This father, this is my son who I'm well pleased. We constantly see them highlighting each other and never themselves. In John 12, it says, "For I, um, Jesus says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So Jesus says, I came to speak the very words of the Father, to say the things that he has given me to say. But then he also says, talks about the Helper, the Holy Spirit, in John 14, 26. He says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So we see that these three persons are one God, The Son does the will of the Father. The Holy Spirit does the will of the Son and the Father. And they're all working together, interrelated all the time. So here's the point that I'd love for you to learn about the triune God. And that is that the Trinity is a mystery. But it's a mystery that we can accept by faith. There is compelling evidence to accept the mystery of the Trinity and to live okay with the fact that it's a mystery Who would we be if we could really wrap our minds around the majesty of God? You know, we are are not ever going to be able to do that to its fullest, just like we can't look out into the universe and comprehend what's beyond the 200 million galaxies that we've already discovered. You know, there's just so much more. In fact, I want to propose that we live a lot of life based on faith. You know, I'm getting on an airplane tomorrow, and I'm flying to Montana for five days. I have no idea how that airplane flies. I have no idea. I know it has something to do with wind under the wings, but I'm going to get on and take a seat because I don't need to know all the mechanics of how the airplane flies. I know enough to place my faith in the fact that that airplane is going to take me to Montana tomorrow. 
You know, I don't know how the internet works, quite frankly. I don't know how I can click on something and boom, everything appears. I don't understand. I know there's people who do, like there's people who know about the airplanes, but it's okay. I don't need to know everything about everything. I don't need to know every creature that's under the sea to dip my toes in the ocean. I don't need to know the vastness numbers of universes that are galaxies that are out in the sky in order to appreciate its beauty. And it's the same way. We know enough to know to say, you know, it's compelling. I understand. I, I get the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't have to know everything about everything. I'm okay with living with mystery in a lot of areas of life. And so it's okay to live with mystery in trying to understand the God of creation. But here's what you need to know. You need to know that God is three persons, that each person is fully God, and there is only one God. That's what you need to know. That Now let's look at Scripture and see how we see the Trinity relating through the pages of the Bible. Beginning in the Old Testament, we see the Trinity from word one. If you come to River West Church, we've been going through the book of Genesis, and um, we've been looking at this. I guess God really wants us to get this. It says in the beginning, God, one God, created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So God created, but already we see there was the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And then when we look into the New Testament, back to the John passage, where John tells us clearly that the Word was in the beginning. He says, all things were made through him. He's speaking of God the Son, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we already have this sense of a plurality to the personhood of God. We have the Spirit over the water. We have God, the Creator. And then we're told in the New Testament that the Son was present too. And in fact, we get a clearer glimpse of that when we look at Genesis 1.26 where it's time to make mankind. And we have God saying, let us make man in our image so we immediately know that God is living in community with himself, and he's going to create man in his image. Later into the Bible, there's another passage that's really insightful. It comes from Isaiah 61.1. And here it is a passage where we see all three persons of the Trinity um, talking about the Messiah who's going to come. It's the words of the Messiah prophesied in Isaiah 61.1. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. That's how it starts. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The spirit is the Holy Spirit of the Lord God is the Father, is upon me is the Messiah who is the Son of God. And he says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, interestingly, when Jesus began his public ministry and he went into the temple, he opened the scroll of Isaiah. He went right to this passage and he read this and he said, this is me. I am he who Isaiah was talking about. I am the Messiah, the Son of God. It became evidence. And that's in Luke 4.17. So the Trinity is evident in the creation of the world, 
and it's evident through the prophets, but mostly in the Old Testament, it's most evident looking forward to the time when the Messiah would come. A lot of the Trinity is seen in prophetic statements. Um, We could go into a lot of depth of other places it's seen, but just suffice to say that though there are sightings of the Holy Spirit and God and theophanies of God's appearance, which we look back and say that was the second person of the Trinity, most of what's written is looking forward to when Christ comes. But then as we get into the New Testament, it's kind of like we get behind the curtain and we're able now to see the three persons of the triune God together in action in very super clear ways because the Messiah has come, the Son has come to earth, and the Holy Spirit is given to the, to the believers. So let's look at the New Testament now and see some places where we see the Trinity. So one of the first places we see is in the incarnation of Christ. It's when he was born, when he was, was, when he was in Mary's womb. Back into the story of Luke in chapter 35, we see the whole Trinity present when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and tells her, you're going to be with child, and his name is going to be Jesus. And he, she says, but I'm a virgin. And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High, that's God the Father, will overshadow you, and the child is going to be the Son of God. All three are present. Then if we look into another passage, which you looked at in your lesson, the baptism of Jesus, we see the three so fully present there. As Jesus goes into the water and comes out and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and the voice of the Father is heard from heaven, it's from Matthew 3.16, one of my favorite sightings of the Trinity. It says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Don't you wonder what that voice sounded like? Was it booming like thunder? I just, I just so wish I could hear what that sounded like. But what an amazing sight. The Son of God, the Spirit descending like a dove, and the voice of God from heaven, all three present in the baptism of Jesus. Well, then also, Jesus gives his great commission. He sends his disciples. He says, you're going to go out into the world and share the good news of the gospel after I leave you. And he makes it very clear that they're going to share the good news of the gospel in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is in Matthew 28, 19. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All three persons are part of the gospel story. And then one more, because it's so fun to see the Trinity in the New Testament. This is from the book of Acts, and this is where Jesus has died, he has been buried, he is resurrected, but it's right before he's ascending, it's right before he's leaving again. And his disciples are asking him, tell us, when, when is the kingdom going to be established? And so he responds to them by telling them that it's the Father who has the great plan for that. But he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, send you the Holy Spirit. So it says in Acts 1, 7 and 8, 
So when they had come together, the disciples, they asked him, Jesus, Lord, will you at this, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So we see the Father is the great planner and, and author of time. But he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is speaking about the Father's plan and the Holy Spirit's power to go and witness. And there's other places throughout the, throughout the New Testament where we see the Trinity. Um, we see Jesus talking about the inner relationship between he and the Father. In John 10.30, he says, I and the Father are one. In John 14.11, he says, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And then in John 14.16, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and he will be in you. So here's what I want you to know about the Trinity in Scripture. God does not live in solitary oneness, but in, e in rich, eternal relatedness. God does not live in solitary oneness. You know, too often that's what we think about God. We think that he is that lone God, far and distant, ruler of the universe. He doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about my life. He doesn't care about humanity. He's out managing the cosmos. He is a big, self-sufficient, isolated God. That's what we tend to think of sometimes about him, but that is not who he is. He lives in a rich eternal relationship with himself. He is a relational God. He lives, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with one mind and one purpose and all shared character qualities, working in all things all the time. He is, he is a community unto himself, and he cares deeply about relationship with us, about having community with us. He invites us to share community with him. Isn't that astounding? He invites us. That's why the whole plan of salvation took place. We were separated from him in relationship because of sin back in the Garden of Eden. And so he made a plan that we could be reunited in relationship with him by the death, resurrection of his son, that instead of us dying eternally and being separated from him forever because of sin, that he would send his own son to earth to die in our place so that we could be reconciled to him in relationship with him. And then he sent his spirit to seal us unto him, to adopt us into his family, to be daughters of the king, to belong to him. And all three parts of the Trinity are, are working in that. The father made the great plan. The son came and paid the penalty for sin and, and made it so we could be back in relationship with the father. And the spirit comes and seals us unto himself. That's the good news of the gospel. That's amazing. God is so relational that he invites us, he invites us into the community that he shares, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He cares so much about community and relationship. And the blessing for us is that we never have to be alone, ever. We, he promises us, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. I will be with you always till the end of the age. And though God the Father is not on this earth, 
God the Son is no longer on this earth. He is ruling from heaven. He is head of the church. God the Holy Spirit is with us right now. That's what we sang about. We sing about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit indwells believers. The Spirit is here working all the time. So he gave us a helper, a comforter, an assist, an advocate to always be with us. And that is when we open our Bibles to study, it's God the Spirit who makes the word alive so that we can know him and and understand what he's speaking into our lives. You know, I want to tell you that I believe that God's gift to us living in a broken, sinful, disjointed, relationally painful world is to give us the church. Because I believe that that was the way that God gave us community. You know, he knows how we'll, we'll tend towards isolation and independence and self-sufficiency and hopelessness. And he gave us the church. I'm not talking about River West Church, although I love River West Church. I'm talking about the community of believers around the world. You know, have you ever had the experience where you can go to some other foreign place and you meet somebody who also loves Jesus and you instantly feel like you have all of this commonality, you just see life from the same perspective? There's this bond. And I think that's his gift to us so that we can understand what it's like to love and be loved, to know and to be known, to serve and to be served, to use our gifts in the church to encourage one another, to not be alone. There was a woman I met this morning. She came for the first time, and she just had tears in her eyes. She's like, I am so lonely. She said, I just needed to come to Bible study and, and be around other women and learn about God with other people. That's the gift of the church. It's an amazing gift. And Jesus prayed for us before he left this earth. He prayed a high priestly prayer, and at the very end of his prayer, he prayed that we would have this kind of community, that we would have this kind of oneness He prayed in John 17, verses 20 and 21. He says to the Father, I do not ask these for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. This is what he's invited us into. He is a God of relationship, a community unto himself, and he's inviting us into this community in relationship with him. That's how vital the Trinity is in understanding our relationship with Holy God and what he's done for us. So I just want to ask you, are you part of a local church? Do you have a community that you belong to? I hope you experience community here in Bible study. That's fantastic. But it's so important that you're part of a church somewhere where you have a people that you belong to that are, you're learning the scripture and you're growing in your faith and you're worshiping together and you're serving and you're being known and knowing and being loved and loving and, and being a part. It's so important. And are you lonely for God? Are you lonely for other people? You know, I look back now, and I am grateful for that season that I went through where I was just so profoundly lonely because it really caused me, first of all, to cling to God for companionship. I had no one else. And then it allowed me to obey him, to step out in courage and step into a church community where I knew no one, 
but then by his grace, had a, a whole group of friends that dearly loved me and welcomed me into their community. And I, so I'm thankful, but I, I really believe that it's, it's as we live in a loving community with others that we then come to understand more of the mystery of the Trinity and how vital it is that we, we share and we become a part of this relationship that God shares with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us. Father, we're small-minded, and it's hard for us to wrap our minds around you as one God, three distinct persons with one mind and one, one purpose, working all the time, sharing all the eternal characteristics but we're so thankful that you invite us into relationship with yourself. We're so thankful that all three persons of the Godhead were actively working in our lives to draw us to this place of knowing you or seeking you, desiring a relationship with you. Thank you, Lord. We're so thankful for who you are. Help us to understand you more. Help us to experience community as you've designed it to be. And help us to really um, enter in to a church where we can become a part and we can grow and learn more about you and serve you in a greater way. I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to find a peace with the parts of you that we can't understand, but continue to, to grow and yearn to know you more deeply. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.